Shalom, and welcome to this week's Think Jewish. And today's Parsha class is uh, called War of the POVs. POV, we'll soon see, stands for Point of View. And subtitle is Understanding the Battlefield. Okay, so let's do this. You know that um, this platform, as of late, we have the new custom that before we get into the deeper esoteric soul of the concept, we first need to deal with the body of the concept. So let's talk about the body of the mitzvah. What is the opening mitzvah of our parsha? And it's all about the laws of the female POWs, prisoners of wars. Okay? So let's talk about it. So, the halacha is called the laws of Yefas Toar. Yefas Toar means beautiful. Yefat Toar. So what is the case? The case is that, remember, I, I just want to clarify because we know POWs as the soldiers that were captured. So maybe the word POW isn't really the right word here, but I'm using it anyway. But what we're really talking about is the spoils of war. Take consideration how it was in the times of old. So a nation went to war against another nation, and the winning nation, the armies, just took the possessions of the defeated people as spoils of war. Part of the spoils of war were the human civilians of the defeated nation. So they just simply took the women, the children, they just took them. So what's going on over here is that unfortunately history is actually full of the shameful, human history is full of the shameful acts of what happened in such scenarios. So the Torah is giving us a very clear commandment with the laws of how the human spoils of war must be treated. So in the olden days, it just came and, you know, you read the history books, right? What happened? They came along, they took whatever they wanted, raped the women, killed the children, and they literally burned down the place. The Torah has zero tolerance for that. Number one, to burn down a place just because you won a war is unacceptable. It's one of the serious commandments called Baal Tashrit. You're not allowed to waste things. You're just not allowed to. And definitely how you treat a human being is very guarded by Jewish law. So let's talk about what the case is, okay? The case is that a soldier is in the Jewish army, goes to war, they're victorious, and he sees a beautiful woman, a native civilian. And he decides that he wants her. So the Torah governs how this has to be. The Torah governs that he needs to decide whether he wants to marry her or to take her as a wife for his son. If not, she cannot be sold, God forbid, in human trafficking. She cannot be kept as a prisoner of his for his personal pleasures. He either has to marry her where she becomes a wife with all the Torah obligations that a husband has to a wife, 
or he has to set her free. Additionally, even if he decides that he does want her as a wife, which means he's committing to respect her as a wife, so too if he decides that maybe she's too young for him, it'll be a wife for her, for her, his son, there are laws what has to happen before. And those laws are basically that she must be given a month's time to mourn the loss of her father, the loss of her mother, the loss of her people before she becomes a wife of this person, which basically means that she's going to become a Jewish woman. Okay? So that is basically the laws, the practical, you know, quick overview. The mourning is done with three interesting details that we're going to talk about later tonight. Number one, she her hair is shaven. Number two, her nails are grown long. And number three, she's given a month to cry. These are all, simply speaking, these are all tradition of mourning. Okay? With that being said, now let's go into the Hasidist part of this mitzvah. Okay? So, number one. I want to point out to you that the verse, I want to first read it to you and point out some very interesting peculiarities of this, of this verse. So let me read you the verses that introduces the opening verses of our Torah portion. If you go out to war on your enemies and the Lord your God will deliver him into your hands and you take his captives and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire her, you may take her for yourself as a wife. You shall bring her into your home, and she shall shave her head and let her nails grow. And she shall remove the garment of her captivity from upon herself and stay in your house and weep for her father and her mother for a full month. After that, you may be intimate with her and possess her, and she will be a wife for you. There you go. There you have the plain and simple. Obviously, this is not the exact verbatim. This is translation of the exact verbatim. It's a sign of mourning. The hair, the hair and the nails are all a sign of mourning. We'll talk about it, okay? Now, here is something very peculiar. I want to go over two things that I'm going to point out of these verses I just read to you. Number one, the verse states an unusual terminology of go out to war al ovecha, on your enemies, rather than the more usual terminology against your enemies, with your enemies. You go to war with a person. You go to war against a person. The word on is not, is not usual for the Torah to use in such a context. Number one. Number two. I want to point out, because this may have gone right over, because I read it without being emphatic about it. Here. Another interesting detail is that I want to go back to the verse, right? And God will deliver him into your hands, and you take his captives. What does that mean? Very interesting. His captives means that you're not taking the civilians, the natives, rather you're taking captives that he took from a different nation. That's unusual. You go to war and you bring back spoils of war 
some of that spoils is the native people. Okay? So, the Jewish people, for what I, what, let's just take a, an argument, right? King David went to war against one of his neighbor, neighbors, and they brought back captives. Who are the captives? So if he went to war against the Plishtim, for example, the captives he brought back were the Plishtim. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that you're going to bring back his captives. That means that before, for example, before King David went to war with the Plishtim, let's say the Plishtim went to war with a different nation. He took captives. And then when King David, let's say, went to war, the verse seems to be saying he didn't take the Plishtim captives. We're talking about taking the captives that the Plishtim took from a different nation. Why? Very unusual. Vishavisa Shivyo. Why? To captive his captives. Okay. Why so? So, to understand this, I just want to tell you again, POV means point of view. Uh, one of the places where you use POV, for example, is when, you get, when you're writing. If you're writing a story, we use the word POV to know from which character's point of view are you telling the story. The story gets very different when you tell it from each character's POV. So that's what POV means. But I'm going to use it here in this, in this concept. Now, what is very interesting is from the esoteric point of view of this commandment, According to a teaching of the Rebbe in 1985 is actually telling us that this entire mitzvah is all about the war of the POVs, point of views. What does that mean? So, it has been said that the motto of the bird is the early bird gets the worm. However, it has also been said that the motto of the worm is the early worm gets eaten. So we're having over here a very interesting battle of point of views. The point of view of the one who has the bird's eye view and of the point of view from the person who has the worm's eye of view. Okay? Another thing. There's a very familiar saying which has become very much the POV of people, spiritual, spiritual people. And what is that? Very interesting saying. We are not human beings having a divine experience. We are divine beings having a human experience. Very interesting POV over here. How are you going to look at yourself? Am I a human being? As the verse says, from the dust you have come and to the dust, the earth you shall return. And in between, I get these spiritual moments? Or am I a divine human being who descended into this world to have human experiences? Very interesting once again. The war of the POVs. Okay? Another thing. I came across a very interesting teaching in Hasidus. And the teaching is as follows. The teaching says... We, we terrestrial creatures, we view the earth as the base of creation. Upon the earth, there are 613 beams, right? The 613 mitzvot commandments that holds up and supports heaven. 
However, in the absolute truth, heaven is the base of all creation, and there are 613 beams that are holding up the earth. Very interesting again, a teaching which really talks to us about the war of point of views. Okay? So, that is really what we're, what we're going to talk about tonight. This war of the POVs and understand how this really is the esoteric soul of our commandment. So let's talk about it, okay? I told you a little bit about the mitzvah, right? The mitzvah called Yifat Torah. The mitzvah of how you have to treat a beautiful female prisoner of war, spoils of war, whatever you want to call it, okay? So there is the body of the commandment. The body of commandment is very specific in its legal ramifications. It's talking to a soldier who has gone to war, victorious, and has seen a beautiful native civilian woman, and he wants her. That's what the simple, practical law is. So this mitzvah is very defined to who it's talking and in what scenario it's talking. You and I really simply don't have this mitzvah. However, there's the soul of the mitzvah, and the soul of the mitzvah applies to every person, in every time, in every place. We need to understand what is the soul of this mitzvah. Okay? So what we're talking about is that the war that we have to go to is the war of our POV. Within each and every one of us, there's a war of point of view. Okay? Let me tell you a very, very interesting, not Jewish thing. Maybe some of you know it. 1973, I was still a little boy. So there was a great cartoonist by the name of Walt Kelly who lived from 1913 to 1973, and he had an ongoing comic strip. One of the center, with the center character being Pogo Possum. Should I ask if anyone remembers this? <laughs> okay. One of the most famous lines of this Pogo is a line he said after, in the scenario, he's searching out the enemy. And go ahead, repeat it again. Correct. He returns and he says, we have found the enemy and he is us. I will share with you that this is what the soul of this commandment is telling us. When you go out to war on your enemy, know that the enemy, the way we're going to perceive it tonight, according to this mimer, is us. It is our worm's eye point of view of reality, of life and of the world around us. Okay? So, we're here waging a war. What is the war? The war is that the godly soul. What is the godly soul? He is an absolute creation of oneness and unity. And he comes down where? Into this earth. And what does he come here to? An environment of absolute separationist and complexity. And the soul is here to wage the war. The soul living within his consciousness of Hashem Echad, God is one, more deeply said, 
According to Hasidus, what is the real definition of the word Hashem Echad? We say one instead of Yachid, which means only. And we're really here to say that the Echad, the complexity of the world, if you were to reveal the truth of it all is what? God is everything and everything is God. And now this is the war that the soul came down into this battlefield of complexity to change, transform, and to bring back captives. Which are the captives we're talking about? So as you know in the teachings of Kabbalah, not only does human beings have a soul, not only do animals have a spirit of life, but every single creation must have a godly spark in order to exist. And thus, what do we have? The war? The war is for us, the soul, the soul, the godly soul with his consciousness of oneness, of unity, of Hashem Achad, is going to go out into the world of separation, of complexity. He's waging a war of paradigm and he's bringing back captives. And what are the captives he's bringing back? The godly sparks. You're now getting an inkling, a view of what we mean by to bring back his captives. These godly sparks are sparks of oneness and unity that were taken captive by the paradigm of the world. Separation. We'll soon discuss that in a moment. Okay? So what happens here? It's very simple. The absolute truth is that God is everything and everything is God. Think of it plain and simple. When you go build a house or you build a table or whatever you're going to build, your first stop is Home Depot because it's made out of supplies. Where did God go shopping with his supply list when he went to create the world? Thus you understand that God created everything from himself. And if he created everything from himself, then he is everything and everything is he. However, thanks to the Tzimtzum, you all heard about the great Tzimtzum, the Kabbalistic version of the Big Bang Theory. What happens by the Tzimtzum? So often I've shared with you the simplest way to understand Tzimtzum without getting all Kabbalistic is Tzimtzum is a one-way mirror. From God's point of view, it's just a plain see-through transparent glass. From our point of view, it's a mirror. And thus when we look up to Tzimtzum, what do we see? We only see ourselves. If you think about it, in our paradigm, what makes God God? That he created me. You get what's going on here? So in a very interesting sense, creation is stuck in a paradigm of separation between creator and creation. That is what symptom really is all about. So what happens here? Within this creations of separation, what does it perceive? That it is separated from God. There's a creator and there's a creation. It's not God is everything and everything is God. God is creation, creator. I am creation. But within each and every one of these creations, there's a godly spark. What is the godly sparks paradigm? The godly sparks paradigm is, obviously, God is everything and everything is God. Thus, you understand now the definition of his captives. 
Because when the godly spark is stuck within the physical paradigm of reality, it's captive. Our job is to go to war. And what do we do at war? We're here to bring back the captives. We're here to bring back the godly sparks. How do we do that? That war is waged in one of two ways. The simplest way that you and I know about is by doing mitzvah. Every single mitzvah has a physical embodiment. So much so that even the mitzvah of studying Torah, we have the commandment of articulating the words because your lips are moving and the movement of the lips is considered a physical action. You can meditate all you want about the beautiful peacefulness of Shabbat candles, but if you don't take a physical candle and light it in the right time, you have not performed the mitzvah. Thus we understand that the concept of performing a mitzvah is what? Is taking that physical object of separation and turning it into a transparent vessel and vehicle for oneness. So when someone comes into your house and sees that beautiful, fancy, expensive silver candelabra on your Shabbat table, what does he think? The first thing he thinks is, oh my God, they're lighting Shabbat candles. Thus you understand that things are becoming transparent. What happens when you put a mezuzah on your doorpost? What happens when your kosher, your, your kitchen, your beautiful kitchen is following the laws of, of kashrut? So what's happening is all those godly sparks are being released and freed and returned because thus we see that the physical world is not a challenge to our service to God. It rather is the beautiful vehicle through which we serve God. And thus, the war is waged, and the war is won, and the captives are brought back home. Okay? There's another way to fight this war. What is the other way of fighting the war? The other way of fighting the war is not the obligatory war. Mitzvahs are not a choice. Whether you want to or not, you have to have a sukkah. You have to, you don't have to have a sukkah. You have to eat in a sukkah. You have to have tefillin. You have to keep kosher. You got to make a bracha, a blessing before you eat. What's the definition of a blessing? You know what the definition of a blessing is? Without getting mystical, what's the definition of a blessing? Definition of blessing is, what are you talking about? I worked for this. I earned this. It's mine. And before I can even use it, what do I say? Thank you, God, who has created this and given this to me. You understand right here the war? Me, 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 right? You all watch the Finding Nemo, all those little pigeons, mine, 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 mine. And what happens? The second before we eat it, we do the war. No, it's not mine. It's God's. And God has allowed me and blessed me. So right here the bracha is a perfect view of what we do. However, that's obligatory. You don't have a choice whether you want to make a bracha or not. The Torah tells you you have to make a bracha. Then there's the war which is not obligatory but voluntary. What's the voluntary war? So believe it or not, it's not a mitzvah to go on a vacation. <laughs> Humorously said, there are those that believe that vacation is an obligatory mitzvah 
expressed in the verse that God told Abraham and all that Sarah your wife shall tell you you shall listen to but simply speaking it's not an obligatory mitzvah so what happens you decide you want to go on a vacation you go to a nice place what happens when you go there and you visit the Jewish community and you go to the synagogue what happens when you set aside time on your vacation since you're not in the rat race the hamster was taken out of the wheel and you say you know what I have time every single morning to just do a little bit of reading of the daily Torah portion so while going on a vacation is not an obligatory war that the Jew must wage between the oneness of the soul and the complexity and separation of the world you understand that when a Jew does take a vacation imagine imagine what happens when the Jew goes on this beautiful expensive sea cruise and there he is in the dining room and his dishes look different his food looks different and people know exactly why oh oh he's Jewish he keeps kosher what happens with Shabbat you're dressed in the black tie that's not what the agenda says the agenda says Thursday night banquet please everyone come down in black tie attire but you're funny you're coming down Friday night you're making kiddush in the main ballroom what happens you realize how many godly sparks you're bringing back home so while it's not an obligatory war it's an amazing war thus you now understand that this mitzvah of going to war seeing a beautiful woman and desiring her is really all about the soul coming into the world seeing beautiful godly sparks and desiring her now that we understand what this war is really all about and that it really takes place every single generation every single person every single place and every single time whether it's an obligatory war or voluntary war now we can go back to the peculiarities of the verse okay there's two things we pointed out number one the verse states war on your enemy not with your enemy or against your enemy it's on your enemy number two you're taking his captives not you're taking captives from him you're taking his captives that he took now let's understand there is a total different war and total different victory when one wages the warm's eye point of view war or when someone wages the bird's eye view point of view it's a very different war why here's the question when I'm going to war with the world am I ripping away pieces of the world taking them captives into my Jewish world my Jewish paradigm my spiritual life or is it quite the contrary I'm not taking away from the world what belongs to the world and bringing it here rather the beautiful concept here is that I'm actually taking that which the world took from the absolute truth now understand what's going on here what's going on here is that the absolute truth is that God is everything and everything is God yet God hid that absolute truth 
beyond, behind the truth of relativity. But within that world, there is that divine spark. There is that godly spark. And thus, when I'm going to war, I'm not going to war against. I'm not coming to take pieces of the world captive. Quite the contrary. It's a total different wholesome war. The wholesomeness of this war is that I am revealing the absolute truth of creation. That's a total different war. Why is it a total different war? Because some wars are won with the victors suppressing those who were defeated. Now, when you suppress a people, a nation, what's really happening is that they're waiting for the opportunity to rebel and overcome. So that war, that victory is never really wholesome. What happens when the war is not about I'm going to win you, I'm going to suppress you. Rather, I'm going to reveal within you your reality. That's a whole different war. The transformation of the enemy makes the victory a wholesome victory, a true victory. So now you understand that when we talk about waging a war on, it's because you're not equal. There isn't two true points of view. There's our point of view, and there's the enemy's point of view, and they're both true. No. There is only one truth. The one truth is that God created the world, and he created the world of himself, and thus God is everything, and everything is God. It truly is Hashem Echad. So this isn't an eye-to-eye -eye war where we have to be concerned who will overcome who. If you want to take a look at it from the correct point of view, when you have a bird's-eye view of the battlefield, what you're truly seeing is that the war is not to suppress the other, but to enhance and reveal the other. And the war that we're here is to bring back POWs, not to create POWs. What a different paradigm of war. It's al oivecha. It's on. We're not coming to take away from them and suppress. We're coming to free and liberate. It's a whole different paradigm. I want to share with you Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch. I want to share with you how he views Teshuvah. The Al-Tarebbe writes that the concept of teshuva is to help, to not help, but to actually do, to break free the prince who was taken prisoner and to return the prince back to his father, the king in the palace. What a different paradigm of war. The Al-Tarebbe sees every single Jew as a prince of the ultimate king, when I say every single Jew, I mean the Jew who is the most blatant sinner, whether it be on a spiritual level or on a moral level. When you're looking at a Jew who sins, you're looking at a prince 
who was taken captive. And thus you understand that Teshuvah is not taken away from the enemy. Rather, it's bringing liberation. We're talking about bring back the captive that was taken. A whole different point of view of what Teshuvah really is. It's interesting. The Rebbe takes this phenomenon, it's not in my notes, but I've watched this so many times with my own eyes. People will come to the Rebbe by dollars and tell the Rebbe, I work on Kirov Rechokim. What does Kirov Rechokim mean? Karov means close, Rachok means far, and basically it's non-Labavichers use the term for Balchuva movement as Kirov Rechokim. You were far away from God and far away from Torah mitzvahs and we're bringing you close. You have no idea how many times I've seen videos where the Rebbe interrupted the person and said, how can you call any Jew in any state Rachok, far? You understand what the word Baal Teshuva means? Teshuva means return. So let's get this for a second, okay? So we have a total atheist or agnostic father and mother that give birth to a son that never had a bar mitzvah, probably didn't even have a circumcision, at least not on a religious level. And then this boy bumps into some little 14-year-old Chabadnik in Manhattan, stepping out of a truck saying, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? Would you like to put on film? He gets intrigued, starts learning, starts learning, starts learning, goes, starts enhancing his life with Torah and mitzvahs, and what do we call him? A returnee? Return from where? He was never here. Someone who was brought up in a religious home, left the religion, comes back. We call him a returnee. Now you understand what's going on here. The Alter Rebbe is telling us, no. Every single Jew is genetically the prince or princess of the king, capital K. And why God has soul come down to begin with in captivity, i.e., not being free to express itself in Torah and mitzvot, I don't know. But one thing I do know is God didn't trust me with that job. But there are souls that God trusted, don't worry. I'm going to send you down as a prisoner before you even realize you're a prince or a princess. I trust you. You'll find your way back home to me. What a different understanding of teshuva. What a different understanding of the entire war that we're talking about. You will go out to war on your enemy and bring back his captives. Okay? Now that we understand this, I want to focus on the mourning process that we, we allow the woman to do. Right? What happens here? So I want to share with you something. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. If I want to suppress you and that should be my victory, all I need to do is understand me. If I want to transform you, who do I need to understand? You. I don't mean you as in you. The person. Now that we understand that this entire war is a war of transformation, not suppression, a war of revelation, even more than transformation, to reveal what always was the truth, we need to understand the enemy. To understand the enemy 
God gives us very deep and secret insight into the enemy and the enemy's culture by teaching us how to let the captive mourn. In this mourning process, we have three things, correct? Crying for a month for the loss of father and mother, the hair issue, and the nail issue. Believe it or not, these three things give us the deepest insight into the culture of the enemy so that we can understand the enemy and thus we can transform the enemy. So let's go over it. Let's go over to the three things, okay? I'm sorry. I want to share with you one amazing teaching of the Rizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, famous Kabbalist. And he's known as the Rizal. Other people know him as the Ria Kadosh. He says something so beautiful in this verse. He says that when the verse states, and she shall cry for her father and her mother for a month. Ready for this? We're talking about the month that we are in now, the last month of the year before Rosh Hashanah, which is the month of Elo, which is the month of Teshuvah. You'll notice that we always read this Torah portion in the month of Elo. That Rizal says on the soul level of the mitzvah, of the commandment, that's what we're talking about. So let's appreciate what we're talking about. Question number one. Why the crying? The Rebbe has fired up the world on do it with joy. Simcha together. The joy breaks through boundaries. Crying is a very difficult thing, especially in our, in our generation where we can really call ourselves a generation of orphans. You think about what we lost in the Holocaust. You think about what we lost in this whole history. We really are considered a, a generation of orphans. To quote the verse, we are but one piece of wood that was saved from the great fire. So really, is that what we need to do? We need to cry? So it's true that the Alta, that the Rebbe focuses beyond, beyond, beyond just plain focusing. The Rebbe just really demands every mitzvah has to be done with joy. So to the mitzvah of teshuva, Hasidus kicks up a storm on the difference of tshuva from love, which is done with joy, to tshuva that's done with fear that comes from tears. But nevertheless, let's go back to the verse. As great as it is to do mitzvah with dancing and joy, the bottom line is that in this verse it tells us that first you need to embrace the tears of remorse. My question is why? I found an answer in an unbelievable, beautiful teaching of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rab Shalom Dov Ber of Lubavitch, on a total mimer dedicated to the concept of teshuva. He talks there about this teaching that we have that every action that we do creates an angel. A good action creates a defending angel and a sin creates a prosecuting angel. Okay? Now, teshuva on the spiritual level is all about getting rid of the prosecuting angel. However, to get rid of the prosecuting angel, we have to use King David's famous double-edged sword. In the verse he says, the, the, the verse talks about the double-edged sword, okay? Why do we need the double-edged sword? The answer is because he explains in the Mimer, he explains that the, the angel is made up of a body and a soul. 
Thus we need a double-edged sword because we need to double slay. We need to slay the body of the persecuting angel and the soul of the persecuting angel. The body of the persecuting angel was created by the action of the sin. The soul of the persecuting angel was created by the passion, that emotion with which we did the sin. Slaying the body of the prosecuting angel is the most fundamental part of teshuva, which means that you stop, I stop doing what I did. By simply that word teshuva, returning back to the righteous path, by stopping to do the sin to the point where God testifies, this man has changed, this woman has changed, that slays the body of the prosecuting angel. How do you slay the soul of the prosecuting angel? So the soul was created by passion. Slaying the soul is through the tears of remorse. So when you did the sin, I, but not you, God forbid, when, when we sin, what happens? What happens is that we don't just do it nonchalantly. We do it with passion, and that becomes the soul. There was pleasure, there was desire, there was heat. When we go ahead and now have remorse to the point of tears over the same action, you now understand that we're having an antithetical emotion to the very action of sin. Thus you understand that the tears of remorse of the sin is exactly what slays the soul of passion of the prosecuting angel. So we're understanding here a very interesting thing that while it's always important to be joyous, but there is that preliminary step where I don't think back about a sin I did and smile, even though I stopped doing it. But if I think back about it and I still smile and still have that glow in my eyes, oh, things were good. That means that the soul of the prosecuting angel wasn't slain. And thus, we do have to have in Elo that first step of mourning, which is the tears over our father and our mother that we were disconnected to through our action of sin and the emotion of passion that we had in the act of sin. Okay? Now let's go to the next two issues. Hair and nails. What are hair and nails? Believe it or not, Kabbalistically speaking, the hair represents excessive intellect, thinking of intellect, and the nails represent the excessive feelings of emotion. This is an unbelievable insight into the culture of our enemy, the worm's eye, the worm's eye view of life and the world and the universe. Thinking is a beautiful thing that brings us to truth only if we know when to stop thinking. Have you ever heard of the saying, analysis to the point of paralysis? Look at it as simple. Truth is right here. We're coming from here. Thinking, 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 thinking. We got the truth and we don't stop thinking. We keep on traveling. What happens then? We're going away from truth. 
Excessive thinking is where we're walking away from the humbleness to be open to truth into the egocentric feeling of I'm thinking, I'm getting it, I got it, I'm in control of this. And thus the culture of separation from God is the indulgence of egocentric thinking. Emotions, we know today that emotions is the core experience of a human being. Number one, emotions is where action takes place. Speak to a salesman. Sales are not made by the intellectual facts. They're actually made by emotional connections. Fear, love. So human experience where reality happens is within emotions. Thus you understand that the beautiful gift of emotions is to really have a divine experience. It's not just about doing what God wants. It's feeling love for God, awe of God. What happens with excessive emotions? So emotions are the gift of truly becoming one with God. Excessive emotions is the absolute suffocation of the human experience. The paralysis of excessive emotions is far more fatal to us than the excessive intellectual thinking. Obviously on a certain level, intellectual thinking is, is when, you, when that goes sour, we're really in, in a bad place. Because if you have excessive emotions, but you still have the intellect to know right from wrong, but if you want to know the true person who is unmanageable, it's the person who has excessive emotions to the point of egocentric suffocation. Thus, understanding the culture, what allows a creation? Do you know what an atheist is, according to Kabbalah? An atheist is a piece of God telling God that God doesn't exist. What makes that possible? That becomes possible through excessive thinking, an experience of egocentric thinking, and excessive emotions egocentric emotions, total indulgence, the suffocation of the human being being able to perceive or feel truth. And now you understand that the process of transformation is to bring the excessive thinking here, the excessive feelings, nails, under discipline. What an amazing transformation of this whole mitzvah we just experienced okay in closing in closing i actually did not see this in the mimer so i'm not telling you the rebbe said this the rebbe actually did not say this but <laughs> maybe i was having my own excessive thinking <laughs> i hope i hope not i hope this is this is spot on there's only one creature that i know that literally, physically, actually goes through a metamorph from the bird, the worm's eye view to the bird's eye view. The caterpillar becomes 
a butterfly. That is literally the worm's eye view to the bird's eye view. So I was thinking about this. One thing I know, we all know, is in order for that metamorphosis to happen, the caterpillar needs to go into isolation into a cocoon. By chsidim, the isolation of the cocoon is prayer, meditative prayer. The month of Elo is the cocoon in which we start shying away from overindulgence in social experiences and start spending time with ourselves alone. We need to turn down the radio waves that's hitting us from the world's POV and be able to start learning chassidus, meditate on what you're learning, and make it our paradigm through meditative prayer. That is the most surest way to be able to go out to war and bring back the captive that was taken. It allows the soul's paradigm to shine through and become a reality to us. People, I'd like to wish you a good year. May we all be written and inscribed in the book of life. Life, true life, is living the paradigm we're talking about. Not to get caught up in the temporal, physical paradigm of separation. It's what I can get but rather it's about the spiritual paradigm of the soul, understanding that we're here to transform our mind, our hearts, the world around us, and bring back the godly sparks, and most importantly, our soul, the true prince of the true king. People, thank you.